Welcome to devmode.fm, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107. I'm Jonathan Melville from MDD in Atlanta. I am Jake Dome from Good Work. And today we have on Sean Larkin from Microsoft. How are you doing, Sean? Hey, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. And we're, we're here to talk about Webpack. So if you were eating a whale steak in a small pub in Keflavik, Iceland, and a Viking strode over to you and he asked you, you know, hey, what is Webpack anyway? What would you tell him? Well, first, I'd invite him to the Blue Lagoon so we could go and hang out in the spa. But <laughs> then I would tell him that Webpack is a tool that helps people use modern technologies like modules um, and things that didn't work in the browser and allows it to work for them. It's really diluted version, but if you wanted a more in-depth pitch, uh, since we have some time in the spa, I would say that Webpack allows you to use a variety of different module formats that don't necessarily work in the browser, like AMD, CommonJS, and also allows you to bundle it into one or many JavaScript files. Yeah. So in, in a, a really short, concise version would be that it's a JavaScript bundler. Yeah, you're right. Right, where it will it will take stuff, and and it, this is something that we when we're doing the uh, the Pico Web discussion, uh, we were talking about it. That one of the reasons why you need this stuff to begin with, like if you have Browserify or Webpack or whatever it ends up being, is that people want to use npm, and npm is for node modules that run they don't run in the web browser, right? Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> I give uh, I have a couple of times given like 16 hour workshops and I've done three hour workshops on Webpack. And mm. there's always something that uh, there's like mandatory course, no matter what the length is. And that's why, like, why does this exist? And right. you really touch on that, which is it kind of has to do with how we use JavaScript today, the birth of JavaScript modules, the explosion of NPM and JavaScript in our ecosystem, and then kind of like the wild west of how anybody can really choose what they want to publish to npm and and that's what front end developers really kind of uh, adopted as their way of being able to access share and distribute javascript you know in the ecosystem now if we lived in some kind of bizarro comic book forked universe <laughs> and bauer ended up coming out on top in terms of where everyone was putting their stuff would we still have webpack uh i still think so right because yeah. um one of the polls, it, it wasn't like what folder it ends up into. It's what's the syntax and what what is the format that people are writing this code in, right? Mm. I think really what excited and allowed developers to heavily adopt the usage of NPM was that in Node, the default was using common JS modules. And people were like, oh my gosh, for the first time, I can have a module system. I can have you know modularity in my code. I can... I can share pieces of it uh, without it being a mess. And that's really what, what got front-end developers excited about using it, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So how about, I want to know a little bit more about you. How did you end up becoming a core maintainer? So the, the Webpack project was originally created by Tobias Coppers, yep. right? Tobias Coppers, you're right. Tobias? Yes, okay. Tobias. And, but when I look it up in Wikipedia, like you're number two. Like, how did you get in there? What's going on? <laughs> it's kind of, okay. Let's sit down and and uh, drink our coffee here. So, all right, it's a good story, I guess. I'll try and rewind a little bit. Before I worked at Microsoft, I worked at two other companies. The first one was kind of a contracting job that I didn't really have a great experience at. But mm. uh, long story short, it was the first time that I ever interacted with Webpack as a tool, right? Previously, I'd only been using Grunt and Gulp, uh, and I was in 
doing Angular work, but this was a React shop. And now, be, be honest. Your first interaction with Webpack, did you love it or hate it? Or and what in what version? Or what version of Webpack? Uh, it was like Webpack one point one four, I think. It was the stable one at the time. Mm-hmm. And oh, but get this though, my first experience was one of the most incredible experiences I can ever describe. Uh, I remember for the first time seeing this brilliant interactive feedback of the build, uh, seeing the percentage. I remember making a change to a file and instantly the browser reloading. I remember seeing the hot module replacement and like the hair, like religious experience. It, the hair stands up on your neck. It stands up on my arm. And I'm like, my eyes open. And it's like, what is this? What this is, is this magic? I've never had a developer experience like this so far. Right. You know, I remember how miserably long the gulp and grunt builds were. I remember, you know, how I had to refresh the browser. We had to use these crazy plugins for the browser that never worked right. Mm. And so trying this for the first time, it blew me away. And although I didn't stay at this company long, every waking day, I spent obsessing about wanting to have this experience more. And so I went to, I was in in Nebraska at the time and I uh, took a job at Mutual of Omaha and I brought Webpack there and I didn't really know much about it, but I started speaking at conference. They were really supportive about it. And so my first conference I got to speak at was, you know, how you use Angular and Webpack 2, right? It was just on the precipice of being released. And fast forward a little bit, I wanted to help on Webpack. Uh, at the time when I was at ng-conf and I was naive and not understanding like there's a process and this is really not something that's been explored before. And so the, the Angular team said, okay, but we need to know like what's Webpack's timelines? What's their milestones? Uh, you know, like what kind of funding are they looking for? And all these things that I had no answers to these questions because I'm not a mm. maintainer. I'm just some random dude who, you know, got some chills on his neck because he likes Webpack. So I, um, <laughs> so I reached out uh, at the time, you know, Gitter, Gitter.im is like one of these interactive GitHub chats. I reached out uh, to mm-hmm. Juho Vepsalainen, uh, also known as at Babra on Twitter, who is also kind of uh, one of the maintainers at the time. And I said, hey, I, I would love to, you know, meet all of the, the maintainers of Webpack. And I would like to get them together and say, like, hey, how can I help fund, fund this project and be involved? And so they like threw them all together in a, in a private chat. And I like ambushed them. I said, hey, how can I get you paid? Uh, and I need to know this like giant list of questions and like nobody really had answers cause it wasn't really an organized project then. Well, that's a way to get everyone um, together is when you say, how do I get you money? <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Um, and then yeah. I guess trying to, to not ramble over this story too much longer, uh, Ken C Dodds was doing a JavaScript air podcast, a live one. And I was, the whole reasoning behind this was I was so obsessed with this team and wanting to learn more about the project and the people behind it. I was like Googling Tobias Coppers online. Like, what does he look like? Right. Cause his avatar is hidden. Sean, I just wanted to have a better idea of Sean, who these people were. Sean, we don't yes. call the, we call this, this is not research. This is called stalking. I know. I know. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Guilty. Uh, I was stalking. <laughs> and so <laughs> I just wanted to see what he looked like. Right. Like you want to know the face behind these projects. Sure. And eventually I saw that Kenzie Dodds was doing this JavaScript error with the Webpack team. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to get to see them live for the first time in person. Right. And so I reached out to somebody who knew Kent and I said, hey, Kent, can you please get me on this podcast? I would love to just sit in the back, like the foreground, right? You know, I won't say anything. I just want to be in the presence of the people whom I admire, who made such an amazing software. And so you were a fanboy at that point. Seriously. Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. um, uh, 
And so basically a week before, I don't know if Kent was trying to save face or, you know, when he produced the media for this pod, you know, for this episode, it said introducing the Webpack team. And so there's three icons of the Webpack team. And then there's my icon next to them. And I'm (laughs) like, so I look, I go to my coworker and I'm sitting in the morning. I go, look at this. What is this? (laughs) What is happening? And so, you know, there's some jokes, uh, you know, that week or the day of the episode, you know, Tobias and, and Yuho are like, they kind of made a joke about it. And they're like, would you like to join the team? I said, absolutely. Right. I had only had one commit to the project at the time. Right. Right. And, and, and then this happened. <laughs> and so it's kind of dumb luck. Right. Uh, That's crazy. But I think, you know, I really got my following or I think. You know, we really started to make progress once I had my presence on Twitter, right? So at the time, like, I was so terrified to contribute because the code base is pretty, um, it's very modular. It's a plugin-based architecture. It's event-driven system. And so, like, there's lots of misdirection uh, or indirection. And it's really hard to navigate yourself through the code base uh, for Webpack. And so I just did what I did best, right? I have a tech support background. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to go on Twitter. I'm going to search Webpack. I'm just going to help whatever people that are on and get the response. And so I did that for maybe like nine months, 12 months, I don't know. And then I started doing it longer. I started getting invites to conference talks uh, even more so. And then really took, uh, really helped finish the Webpack 2 process, right? Doing commits and landing a bunch of changes to help get there for the sake of education and and my love for the project. But yeah, I mean... (laughs) It's kind of just a, a crazy dumb luck story. And I'm fortunate enough for Kent, uh, you know, Kent C. Dodds to, to call me a, a member of the Webpack team. So you, you were <laughs> just going there to try and get your album cover autographed. And they <laughs> yes. said, hey, they said, hey, you want to join the band? Yep, that's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly it. Do you autograph my Webpack 1.14 <laughs> edition? <laughs> yes, exactly. That's such a cool story, though. And it's a, it's a great way for people listening who are wondering how they should contribute to open source. If they have this cool project that they love and what they can do, you know, with a really sometimes intimidating code base, whether it would be on a framework or Webpack or whatever it may be. If you just hop on the GitHub issues or their Discord or Slack or whatever channel and see what issues people are having with. If you just show up there and start to help and help with little things Mm -hmm. here and there and get familiarity uh, that way, that's such a great way to contribute. Communities need that. And it takes a load off of, um, you know, core contributors too, so that they can be working on features and things like that. Totally. And that's kind of like how my role has been adopted now. Thanks to our fundraising and kind of, so, you know, Obviously, once I joined, there are some organizational changes. We created a core team. We open. We joined with Open Collective. We, uh, you know, joined a foundation for legal protection, and so things started getting real. But like now, fast forward to today, after three years of being involved in the project, you know, we now have a half a million dollar budget in our Open Collective, and still aggressively trying to fundraise for more. But now Tobias is full time on Webpack. Nice. Um, and so my job is to help not only raise. Uh, sponsorships and fundraising. It's to work with partners and and potential customers who use Webpack and showing like what our impact can be when you when you help sponsor us, or and even more so like I wouldn't be here at Microsoft today if it wasn't for my contributions to open source. And right. so, like literally, they they took me into the office and said like, Hey, we've seen your talks, we've seen your code, and we want you to work here. And I like fell over in the chair, but um, you know, it turns out that. Webpack is the second most used open source project here at Microsoft. 
Right. And I wanted to ask you about that because I found out that you worked at Microsoft on the the Edge team, Mm -hmm. right? And okay, I I realize that there are stereotypes and a lot of them are wrong, but of course, when I think of Microsoft, I don't think of Webpack. I don't think of modern JavaScript. Like I think ASP.NET and stodgy old stuff. And it sounds like I'm totally wrong about that. I mean, yes and no, right? Like uh, in the past five years, yeah, things have changed completely. Like I wouldn't work. Who who owns GitHub now? Right. Who owns GitHub? (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Right. Who's the largest open source contributor in the world? Is it Microsoft? It's Microsoft. Wow. Who created TypeScript and VS Code, the editor that everybody loves to use. Right. See, what, what I find so amazing is that we've turned to open source as a means for us to solve our problems publicly, right? And it turns Mm -hmm. out that we write code the same way that everybody else does. And that's why it's so powerful. Because when we solve for ourselves, we get to solve for you. Right. And so it's instant innovation that that really kind of it gets viral really quickly. Like look how fast TypeScript caught caught Steam or or how quickly VS Code was adopted. Yeah. And I I find this whole thing your whole story is amazing because it's something I say all the time. There are lots of very smart people in this world and it does take a little bit of luck, you know, for the the people that really take off because there, there are lots of equally smart people. And sometimes it's, you just got to be in the right place at the right time. And, you know, now I see you on Twitter, like you're, you're dancing on beaches, you're diving off bridges, you're bathing in the blue lagoon <laughs> in Iceland. Like you're, ah, true. you're living the life, right? Yeah, I'm so blessed. And uh, <laughs> it, there's a little privilege involved, but I'm, I'm just so fortunate to be where I am today. And I mean, I can't discount the work that I've done for Webpack. But at the same time, like, you know, I wish that there were more people who had stories like mine. Um, right. And so, you know, I do try, I, I try and share that story not to brag or not to be like, look how lucky I got. It's more like, hey, you know, just take your greatest talents and apply it to an open source project you love. Right. Yes. And who knows what could happen? You know, you could be at Microsoft doing incredible things. And I think that I, I don't think that the story you told came off like that at, at all. Like, sure. I thought it was it was very humbling because you you were very clear that you know I I was just using this thing, <laughs> I just right. kind of fell backwards into it. But you, you make a really really good point: is that if you if you find a project, an open source project that you care about, take whatever it is you're good at and and start using it uh, and apply it to that project. Because the absolute worst case is that you'll kind of be adhering to the camper's motto and you'll be making things better than you left it, right? Exactly. And the best case is that something awesome happens. Yeah, you know? totally, right? And and like, yeah. it's not just limited to development, right? It's right. like, I'm not the most brilliant person in the world. Like, you, like, I think Tobias has a brilliant mind and he has a huge aptitude for software engineering. I may be kind of just middle of the, the, middle of the road, right? You know, I'm a, I'm a 3X engineer, and uh so like i gotta work a little bit harder to figure out harder concepts and this really comes natural to him and so it just made sense for me to focus on being in the community and using my interpersonal skills or using my communication skills and like so even if you're not a programmer but let's say you're a tech writer or you're doing legal work or you know doing design work like we would love those kind of contributions because it's the things you're great at and it provides really special impact to a project. Yeah. And you can write the most complicated, amazing code in the world, but if no one finds out about it, like who cares? (laughs) Yeah. And if the API (laughs) sucks or if it's not documented, yeah, absolutely. That was Webpack, you know, 2012 and 2013. Right. And and, and I'm glad you made that joke so I didn't have to, Sean. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, yeah, and I think that documentation is huge. If you are building a framework or a thing that you want other people to then start adopting, as is you outreaching to try and help people with problems and help them learn it. Right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, and, it, and yeah. like the more you know, this is this is one thing that I really uh, took away from my first year at Microsoft, which is that as a program manager, it's our jobs to really put zero distance between our customers, the feedback and the things that we're creating, right? And mm. so bringing that to the table as a part of Webpack has really allowed our future, like the progress that we've made in the last two years to really thrive, right. at least in the features that we brought to the table, really just show like, hey, we're actually listening. And the feedback that you give us, like we we run with it, right? And we make something out of it. Yeah. And, you know, as a testament to all of this, I mean, one of the reasons why I did this huge article on Webpack and what inspired it was you. Right. And I mentioned that to you. Uh, and I mentioned that in the article that I tweeted at you and I basically said, well, you know, Webpack is kind of like a black box. And he's, you, you said back to me, it is until you open it. Like, here's <laughs> the docs, like dive in, go, go learn something. I remember, you know? I still remembered that day that that exact tweet, right? Cause your, icon, wow. your, your icon is, is really rememberable on Twitter. And so mm. like, <laughs> right. Um, so like, I remember the exact tweet, that exact conversation to this day, the first time I interacted with you. Wow, that's crazy. That's crazy. Like I had no idea because I know that you're you're a busy person. Lots of people want to have pieces of you. Like I had no idea that you you remember that. But I, I wanted to mention that because you know that ties into what we we're talking about before in terms of use what you're good at, and that kind of outreach makes a huge difference in terms of people deciding to adopt the technology. You know, had you ignored me or, or said something nasty back, you know, maybe I wouldn't have bothered. And you know you what, know? by all means, I'm not perfect. Like I've had my ups and downs uh, before with the community and, and it happens, right? Like that's mm -hmm. part of being human and it's part of being in the public. Um, but like one of the, the the greatest takeaways that I've always had is right. If you sow the these seeds of kindness, even, you know, I call it a seed, right? Because it, it's, it could only be one tweet or 140 characters or a couple of minutes of your time. Right. Um, and it can really kind of, sprout into something super special or really impactful down the road. So yeah, I think it, it, it's always so, so much worth taking the time to sow those kind of seeds. All right. Well, let's, let's get into some of the, the, the grimy gritty details of, of Webpack. All right. So the, the first thing I want to ask about is Webpack. Is it still, is it still lowercase W whenever I write this thing? It is always, <sighs> always. Why? You can go to our webhack.js.org forward slash branding because it's in our branding guide. Well, I'm, I'm looking. So one of the things that I have open, and I've had this open on my computer for probably four months. Your face is staring back at me. I'm looking <laughs> at Front End Masters Webpack 4 Fundamentals with oh. Sean Larkin. Okay? Yes. And I've debated... I've gone back and forth on buying the course because I, I did kind of a deep dive on Webpack. I, I don't consider myself an expert by any means, but I I went in pretty deep, right? I mean, I I, I went in, I came out totally. a month later, and I was a I was a changed man. <laughs> okay, <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and baptized. Yeah, and I was looking at this course, and I'm like, ah, maybe I should buy this before uh, I end up. You know, we end up having Sean on to talk to him about it, but I, I never did. But I'm looking at this page and I got to tell you, Sean, Webpack, the W is capitalized. I I, I try not to, you got to pick and choose your battles. So okay. I just said, I, I mentioned, I said, that's supposed to be a lowercase W, but you know, I, I let it <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't adhere to the branding guy. No, they which didn't. looks quite nice, actually. Thank you very much. Yeah. 
was created by one of our core teams. I realize I'm being pedantic about it, but what what is the reasoning for the lowercase w? Is it do you not want it to be a proper noun? I think it was just stylistic. Stylist, and, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, you know, designers, designers, sure. right? Am I right? Oh yeah, we we, <laughs> oh, we got one here. I mean, Jonathan, <laughs> you're, right. you're right. Jonathan's classical training is in design, so oh, we nice. we got one here. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I would go with the lowercase w. I think it looks better. Same, but. Okay, so for, forget about the branding because you know, let's get into the the guts of it. So, right, who 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 is Webpack targeting? You know, like who is the the person that you are expect you're building this thing for? Many people might say it's meant for lower level developer. You know, it's supposed to be you know close to the metal, hmm. or for those who are wanting to you know work on a build system or build a tool around it, you know, to build a website. But honestly, our target day one has always been every single person, hmm. right? Anybody who is writing for the web who wants to take their JavaScript and ship it in a way that's super performant, you know, that's who our customer is. It also happens that one of our core principles is that it's supposed to be infinitely extendable, right? So uh, we've not always had the best defaults, and it's not always been the best for somebody starting out for the first time. But the goal is that we want to cover the spectrum, right? Be anything to everyone or to anyone. Yeah, like uh, the goal is really just be anything to anybody or, you know, like we want to cover that entire spectrum. And, you know, I think that's it's changed a lot over time. And we've really started to focus on more the how would I say the developer who doesn't really care how their build tools work Mm. Um, and just want to focus on writing a website. So I can tell you, you know, just a little bit about me and my background. So I come from a uh, an app development background, you know, Mm -hmm. so like. C working with GCC and LVM and and all that kind of fun stuff. When I was approaching learning Webpack, I think what was the most complicated thing was just learning all of the the lingo and the kind of what various things were being called in terms right. of you know entry points, outputs, loaders, plugins, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely, yeah. I, some you can just blame Tobias for, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because he's English as second language, uh, so he's going to choose. And he loves wordy words, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a lot of those kind of words. He comes from a C sharp background, so you know, you have a lot of like context module factory or mm-hmm. you know, things like that in, in the backgrounds of our APIs, and sometimes they kind of leak forward into the user kind of API itself. But um, you know, you're you're right though, like. Uh, a lot of people can describe Webpack as being a tool that you build on top of and you create a platform or a developer experience on top of. Right. And that's really what, you know, in the most recent time I worked with, you know, I even remember working with Dan, like when he, he, he got on a screen call with me and he was like, Hey Sean, we have this idea and we want to call it create react app. And so like, I remember when he first showed that to me and I was like, ah, I don't know, maybe you should show like expose the Webpack config. He's like, <laughs> no, cause we don't want to support it. Right. And I said, okay, makes sense, but good luck. And you know, obviously that was really successful. And so Angular followed suit and I, well, I, I kind of had to drag Webpack to the Angular team, but that's another story for another time. But yeah, like, or my greatest example is that we know why Vue.js is so hot and so popular. Mm. That's because Evan Yu built the entire framework with consideration of Webpack as being the primary tool used. Or he built like the single file component system is literally a platform made from from Webpack and loaders and using ES modules, right? And so like it's so popular and it's such a, I don't know, I say like, like it just drips developer experience because 
the, the framework author considered that build tool as being, you know, I don't want to say weapon, but uh, it, it was actually kind of a complement to to the entire experience. Right. And, and that's amazing when you get these layers of technology. And because Webpack is providing this amazing foundation, Evan was probably like, you know what? I can do this or I can have a dot view file and it can have the template code, the JavaScript and the styles all in one place. And I can just exactly. make a Webpack loader and, you know, away we go. But just to so we don't get too ahead of ourselves. So <laughs> in Webpack, how does it work? So my understanding is that Webpack only knows about JavaScript. Is that correct? Uh, so as of Webpack 3, that was correct. In Webpack 4, we do support a couple other what we call module types. Mm-hmm. But you're right in saying that really the world in Webpack is very JavaScript-centric. Right. right. You know, you provide a JavaScript entry point, and there's three main phases. We have create the dependency graph, optimize the graph, and then render it or output the bundles. Right. So the first step is literally uh, you start at an entry point. It collects the source for that file. We parse it and we see, hey, do we have any other import or require statements or or any module statements inside of this code? If there is, then we stitch together what we call dependencies, right? These are pointing towards other modules. And then we repeat that process, right? So we go to each file and we say, "Well, well, for each dependency here, let's make sure it exists, pull the source code, parse it, and then find dependencies in there. And so that's just this kind of recursive algorithm that builds up a graph. And I think this is where you might lose quote unquote everyone, right? And the reason why I'm saying well, and the reason why I'm saying that is that people who come from a more traditional designer dev, you know, web development background, like what is an entry point? Like I don't know what that is. I just I just have like scripts and and JavaScript is not the center of my universe. Like the center of my exactly. universe is HTML, right? Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. It turns out that if you ever need to use JavaScript, there's only one way to do it, and it's by using a script tag. Right. And so we're just trying to optimize that that uh, experience. Uh, I like giving the anecdote in tools like Grunt and Gulp, you had to glob these files, and you had to manually tell your tool where everything lives and how to smush it together. Right. But the benefit here is that an entry point is just the first file that's going to kick off your entire application, and it tells Webpack what all to collect based on the things, based on each of these dependency statements. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I mean, all I'm trying to get to here is that I think people who come from a designer developer, traditional web page development background, they think of their HTML as kind of the center of the universe, whereas with Webpack, it really JavaScript is the center of the universe. And most of the people who were using it initially were people that were doing serious development using these front-end frameworks like Angular, yep. Vue, uh, React, etc. right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. And there are ways to introduce other types of assets through Webpack, but you're you're completely spot on. Most people don't care because it's like, well, JavaScript's just a side effect of of something I have to write right. or, you know, something I need to create. And a lot of times, you know, with the amount of obnoxiously rich tooling we have in the JavaScript ecosystem, it can be overwhelming, like incredibly overwhelming to those who have no idea what a module is or Mm-hmm. Who have no idea what a dependency graph is, right? Or anything. We've we've talked on here before about <laughs> how if you're like if you're just getting into web development now, how overwhelming it must seem when you look out at the at the landscape, especially the JavaScript landscape these days. It is just completely unbelievable the amount of tooling required just to get a simple project off the ground and 
Um, I mean, at the same time, though, I could say, what a time we live in. Like, yeah, that's true. What a time to be alive because look at all the options that we have or like right uh, my joke that i always give at conferences is like in what programming language can you say that you use syntax that doesn't exist yet right, <laughs> right. like yeah. what a time to be alive like yeah. how incredible is that well, people and, are making and, new frameworks all the time but you're right if people just want to get stuff done it's hard right tell me what i should choose instead of you know wandering through the the magic forest choosing your own adventure and i think one of the initial or like a, a frequent criticism of Webpack is that it's too hard to configure, right? And this goes back to what you were talking about earlier, where Webpack is not trying to be this sort of high-level kind of tool that that serves like a lot of different needs. It's kind of like the idea is if you have a really complicated project, you need like an infinite way to configure it. And so I've never really understood that criticism because if you try to if you try to to have some tool where um, it's like a lot of the stuff is done for you, then you're definitely going to run into a circumstance where that's not going to meet your need. Exactly. Extensibility is the reason why Webpack is so popular, right? Yeah. Because by being so pragmatic in, in our defaults and open-ended, that allows anybody to pick it up and use it for however, you know, however they want. A lot of times we've found that we'll just make this joke. You know, it always starts with zero config. And if it bundles for you, then you're always going to need to do something extra. So the more that you hide any kind of configurability or complexity, like you just lose customers, right? The moment, you know, one of the things I really loved about Parcel is it gave us good ideas to be like, hey, this actually validates that we could get away with doing these defaults. But at the same time, we also saw the downfalls in the architecture, right? Like you're basically supporting every type of asset in a single package. So if you're not even using SaaS and it breaks, uh, you're going to have to ship a major breaking change to everyone for something you don't use. Or so like there's manageability issues, but then it's always, it starts with zero config. And the moment somebody can't, they're just going to leave. They're going to go back to using a tool that they know can be extended. Yeah, an analogy I've made, and I don't know how accurate you think this is or is not, is that Webpack is kind of analogous to GCC or LLVM from the point of view of it's it's like super powerful, works with multiple languages, and it's something that everyone ends up using, even though they may be using something that is built or, or scaffolded on top of it. Exactly. Right. And we kind of aim to be that now. I think we're past the point where it's like, we're not battling to be better than another tool. Like we know we're the foundation and our roots are like, um, I would lie if I told you, you know, I didn't strategically work with every framework to ensure that quote, our roots are dug deep, right? Because we wanted to be the foundation. We wanted to be this platform that others can continue to build on, but also that anybody could take and kind of break apart or modularize just like GCC or LLVM. Like you can take these pieces, use them in specific ways, leverage them to do more powerful things. But I still think that, you know, LLVM and GCC get a lot of crap for, you know, being hard to use for the average dev, right? So I think we still have some work there that we could do. There is still uh, room room to grow. Yeah, well, so something you mentioned before is, you know, in what world can you use a language that doesn't exist. And it's one of those things where everything that's old is new again. So have you heard of a little language called C++? Uh, I've heard of it. Heard of it. Yeah. So never heard of it. Used a little bit here at Microsoft. So that that language was originally a preprocessor for C, right? I mean, that's 
that's how it was built, right? So this is, these kind of patterns and techniques are something that are kind of well-worn and are well-worn for a reason, I think. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the, what's really cool is that we've inspired a lot of systems programmers, right? Like the techniques that Webpack brings to the table that nobody else did at the time was like this idea of code splitting or lazy loading pieces Mm -hmm. of your code that you don't need up front, right? Right. Uh, That's one of the, the most impactful and sole purpose for for Webpack's existence, right? Is this idea of code splitting and statically generating lazy loaded bundles at build time. Uh, And so like, but many people in systems programming had never even heard of this, right? They they didn't even know because there is no mindset for size constraints in systems. Yeah, why would they need need that? Why does it matter? Right, exactly. People don't care. They're going to go ship 13 gigabyte binaries, you know, for video games. Right. And then we sit here for 10 minutes trying to get Forza to load and you're like, why is this happening? But I digress. <laughs> I digress. But anyway, I say to myself, I'm like, oh, I bet they're not code splitting. But uh, right. but seriously, um, I think, you know, we've inspired, you know, this other ecosystem at the same time where they might complain. Uh, I had a famous interaction that wasn't so positive with Gary Bernhardt, but I think the the swan, the silver lining here is that he used to heavily criticize webpack and then went on like a 6 day stint of like tweeting random bundler related questions as if he like it was very obvious he was writing his own bundler and mm. um because he just wanted to use typescript and he was frustrated he's like i don't want to have to use webpack i don't want to have to use this loader and i'm like gary happy to help but uh he <laughs> he's like no i'm going to do it and uh so you know he comes back after this this week right baptized by the the fire of of the ecosystem and really probably sobbing himself to sleep at night well he was like wow it turns out this stuff's actually really complex and so like you know i'm pulling my hair out because it's like i just want to teach you guys i want to teach everybody that you know there's some complexities here and there's a reason why this stuff exists and why it's foundational well sean this is kind of like a drug addict though right sometimes you have to let them hit rock bottom Before you can help them. Okay. That's, that's, that's really good advice. And I'm going to keep that, keep that close to me. (laughs) Maybe it's me. (laughs) Right. You were mentioning before that there are, uh, for instance, create react app was built on top of Webpack, right? So, and then there's a view CLI and then there's, there are tools like Laravel mix, which, you know, aims to kind of simplify things. What is your, what thoughts do you have on these tools that layer on top of Webpack? Are you happy to have them? Do you think they're just hiding away the complexity and people will eventually have to get down to the metal? Or, or what are your kind of thoughts on these tools in general? So, like, my my general opinion is always it always starts with, you know, zero config, right? So, in hmm. uh, every application, whether you like to admit it or, you know, you may say that's not me, not all apps, but it's literally every app is a snowflake. And you will find the business requirement to need to do something custom and it'll need you to open up, you know, a Webpack config maybe. So my take on this and, you know, there's a team here at Microsoft under Office 365 and they're working on like React UI Fabric, which is a React library. But they also have like an infrastructure team um, who works on like tooling. And so there's one right now, uh, his name's Ken. He's making this uh, project called Just, or Just Scripts. So it's Microsoft slash just scripts. And it kind of has a basic set of scripts, like here's a basic usage of Webpack. And so half of my day is working with other teams and helping do performance evaluations and all sorts of stuff across campus. And so one of these teams is using this project 
And all I wanted to do is customize one thing so I could get a special feedback output from Webpack. But I can't do it because mm-hmm. it's abstracted and it swallows up all the console feedback. And so I'm over here, you know, raging on my keyboard like, Ken, you need to stop overriding the default output of Webpack, right? <laughs> <laughs> because I just need to see this information or you need to make it possible for me to break in and customize it freely. So I think my opinion is like totally cool to abstract. Uh, I totally see the need and the business case and the use for it. Um, but you better make sure that there's an easy way for it, for the expert to go in and customize any single piece, right? So make it completely overridable. Yeah, and that that is something that all of the tools that I mentioned do is that, for instance, Laravel Mix will have you know its its own little mixy kind of config, and then it will also have a a Webpack config key where you can just dump in whatever you want and that will get combined with the webpack config that it makes and right. same with Vue cli and build react app and all those kind of things right yeah. uh jake yeah and some more um kind of that even do a little bit more would be something like nuxt or uh, gatsby which mm-hmm. abstract away some of that but i know gatsby and nuxt both have a really really good solid escape hatches where you can provide pretty directly uh, a webpack config so they don't I know Create React app is a little bit more opinionated, um, but uh, Gatsby, you know, adds a lot of features kind of on top of Webpack, and that's one of that's more of a framework that does more for you out of the box and really uses Webpack, like Sean was talking about, down closer to the metal, and then gives you options on top of it. But it still gives you those good configuration options, so you can do those parts on your own. So make it easy for me to get running. Yep. But if I really do need to roll up my sleeves and, and don't want to have Sean Larkin raging yep. that he yep. <laughs> to stop <laughs> scarfing the output, you know, give me some kind of a way where I can get down to the bare metal for the underlying Webpack config, right? Yeah, pave the happy path, but uh, leave a manhole. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let them get down under the pavement if they need to. A gaping manhole, so it's really easy yes. to get to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, Maybe I like that. I like that analogy there. <laughs> I, I, I like that. I like that. Paving the golden path, but leaving a manhole. I like it. Even though it means that <laughs> when we're configuring Webpack by analogy, that means we're getting down into the shit. <laughs> in theory. I don't. In theory. Yeah, in theory. In theory. In theory. So, Sean, at some point, you have to kind of be like a, a proud father in some ways. Like I've worked on projects where I build tools that other developers then go and build stuff on top of that. And I I see the stuff that they make and I'm like, wow, that's really cool. It must seem kind of enabling for you to participate in this scaffolding foundation that tons of really awesome stuff is built on. Yeah, like that's kind of the, you do take a lot of pride when you see yet another framework adopt Webpack, right? One of the ones that was really like, I don't know, it just felt really special to me because one of my first languages was Ruby, right? Mm -hmm. And although I didn't really like Ruby on Rails, sorry, DHH, uh, (laughs) I was a huge Sinatra (laughs) fan, but like go figure, right? Configuration over convention. And, but, Hmm. but when I saw DHH announce, you know, like, hey, we're going to completely adopt Webpack. And like, I fell over. I was so proud, right? Like, nice. or like, and then it went Symphony and Elixir and Phoenix and Django and, you know, Laravel and, you know, not, so not just the front end frameworks, but right. we even have all of these back end or full stack quote unquote frameworks that are adopting this technology. And so it's like, that was probably the most validating for me because it's not sometimes, you know, I think, you know, us JavaScript people are just drinking the JavaScript Kool-Aid and, you know, nobody else really respects or realize the things that we're doing. And then finally, you know, you see these people go ahead and adopt it or even like, what, what's it? Um, I forget his name. I feel really bad about it. But uh, 
piece of creator closure script you know like they're adopting you know a webpack experience using closure script and like or even elm you know has a webpack right. integration and so it's like it just it makes me really proud and I, I just hope that people continue to want to build on top of it right because it just like wherever there's a limitation then like that's our opportunity to to open doors and webpack has really gotten to a point now where i mean you really have no no peers, right? Or correct? You know, well, there's rollout. Yeah, uh, rollup is really awesome, and Rich Harris is like me and him. Like we're BFFs that live on opposite coasts, and it kills me because I love going to New good. York and hanging out with him. Yeah. Um, we're having Rich on soon to good. talk about Svelte. So yeah, if you like got one, anything you want to, if you got anything you want to say to get him riled up, go ahead and do it now. Rich, you better merge <laughs> and, that freaking Webpack template PR I have for Svelte three <laughs> because I've got it. And then beat Webpack. They beat Webpack to like tree shaking, right? Because Rollup was the first offer. Yeah, but he cuts corners though. So like we're spec compliant and he cuts corners. But like that's Rich Harris's Um, code, right? Like he writes stuff that doesn't really always support the edge cases. But like that's okay, right? Because that works for his everyday life. And a lot of times that works for everyday people, you know, doing like it, it just works. And so they can do a little bit more, but it might break code sometimes, you know? So like there's trade-offs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it might be a little bit more optimized, but I think like at the end of the day, like choosing rollup over Webpack isn't going to get you like, like that's, you don't, a lot of people will say like use rollup to, to help bundle a library, like even in Sapper, right? I think Webpack is still the foundational tool in Sapper, which is like the meta framework for Svelte. Hmm. Well, I, I personally love the fact that we have, some very smart people that are working on similar things because I like that kind of competition rivalry. You know, I think good things competition can, is really good. Yeah. I think good things can definitely come out of that. I, and I want to touch on something you mentioned earlier about, you know, the respect that JavaScript developers have. I, I think especially me coming from more of an app development background, I can tell you that definitely like there was a time that if you did web work. It wasn't even called development. Like a lot of the the people that were doing app development didn't consider it real development at all. Right. And JavaScript was considered like this toy language. And but man, the tables have turned. Like they really <laughs> have turned because the, the sheer yeah. number of people in the JavaScript community have turned it into this like beast that is just doing some amazing things. And now People are, ironically, you know, a lot of these people are like iOS developers or whatever. Now they're being invaded by JavaScript developers that are using React Native or Native Script to build their apps. And they're looking over their shoulder like, what the hell happened? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, it's so true. You know, it's funny you mentioned like the the titles thing. Like, no offense to Mutual of Omaha, but, you know, we always like snarked a lot about it is that I was called a UI UX developer. Right. Mm. But then downstairs and in information services, we were in marketing, but downstairs and mm. in information services, they were called architects. Architects. Ooh. Mm. Architects. And so, you know, but they had no idea how the front end worked. Right. So, like, it was so frustrating because, like, they would come and you to were, us. And you were in marketing. That says it all. Like, you're <laughs> right. Right. You were in marketing. That's all. That's all you need to say about <laughs> we what they marketing. thought of it. We weren't in right? information systems. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've got a buddy of mine that, I got to mention this. So he he used to work at uh, a company. I'm not going to name him or the company, but they moved to these swanky new offices and the development team was put into an open air office space right next to the call center. (laughs) (laughs) Like literally the the person in the cubicle on either side of him was like taking support calls. (laughs) Good time. 
I'm like, oh, man, management has no idea what they're doing. Happens. But let's move on to more interesting stuff. So I want to have someone on to talk about web assemblies because I know it's a huge topic, but I want to get into it real quick because you mentioned that there's more than one module type that you support. And I believe in addition to JavaScript, there's WebAssembly, right? You've done your homework. I've been playing around with WebAssembly. Yeah, so it's WebAssembly. So the default module types in Webpacker, uh, we have a couple flavors of JavaScript. Some is strict, some is loosey-goosey, mm-hmm. and then there's JSON and WebAssembly. Those are the other two module types. So yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. We were awarded $150,000 by the Mozilla Open Source Support Foundation, a grant for implementing uh, WebAssembly as a first-class citizen in Webpack. And although, so like what the, is it? What is it for people that like they, they just they've heard of it, they don't know what it is. Like, what the heck is WebAssembly? Oh man, people are gonna. I'm gonna butcher it. Uh, but uh, so, if you want to have somebody really great on, ask Jay Phelps. But uh, okay, and he can yell at me for getting all the things wrong if I if I say it wrong. So that might be a great way to get him wrong. Get him on. Right, is if right. you butcher stuff, he's gonna want to come on and correct it. Is that how you got me on? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> So, so make sure you get it really wrong. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. No, <laughs> it's just JVM. No, uh, so WebAssembly is a byte code format mm-hmm. that allows you to take a higher level language such as C, C++, Rust, um, or other languages that support this target and compile it down into an, imidi- an immediary binary format called WebAssembly that runs in the browser. So too long didn't read, you can... Take a C++ file like Zlib, super popular, or some like graphics engineering or, you know, and you can tell LVM or Inscriptum or whatever your tool chain is to compile it to a WebAssembly target. And it spits out a WASM file and you can run it in the browser. Yeah. And we are definitely going to have someone talk, come on here to talk to us more in depth about WebAssembly. But I just want to touch on it because that's you know, JavaScript is one of the module formats. There's JSON, there's WebAssembly. As you mentioned, there are a couple of flavors of JavaScript okay, that's great, but I want CSS. Like, how does that get into the mix here? Like, uh, if, if the if Webpack only understands JavaScript, what do we use to get it, you know, doing our post-CSS or our SAS or whatever? How does that work? So it's really funny they mention it because we've actually gone through a couple iterations and, like, we've either killed the PRs or stalled them, right? Mm. Because they just were not generic enough, right? We have to be really careful, right? Because whatever we do in terms of supporting CSS, we're building it into Webpack, right? And that means there's de- this is de- a default now. right? And so we just have to be really careful on how we choose to have this default, you know, manifest itself. So like we've attempted it a couple times. We closed a couple PRs once on it before and it we got kind of, it was okay. It was a little hacky. It didn't feel right. We saw kind of the consequences of parcels implementation and it's not always very accurate. And it kind of concerned us, right? Like, can we really be generic enough when it comes to CSS to make it work? But we are thinking about like HTML module, right? As an entry point that allows you to have HTML as an entry point, which I heard was, you know, very popular uh, aspect of parcel, right? They could just drop an HTML file in here. It may include some JavaScript with modules and then the bundler just takes care of it, right? Well, so since, since Webpack doesn't know anything about CSS right now, we need a loader to then handle it. Is that right? Correct. Correct. A loader will take and trans, well, I won't say transpile. It'll uh, convert it into a JavaScript module that I'm diluting it down here a little bit. So if you wanted to use CSS uh, with Webpack, it basically converts it into a JavaScript file that says, okay, take this CSS string and slap it into a script or a style tag in the browser when the JavaScript loads. 
Right. And we need that for anything. So since Webpack only understands those couple JavaScript flavors, JSON and WebAssembly for anything else, whether it's a single file view.view components or whether it's CSS or SAS or post-CSS or whatever, we need a loader that then pulls that stuff in and transforms it and does something with it, right? Yep. Transforms it into a valid supported module type that we do right. support. Right. right. That's what's cool, though. Like loaders let you do things like you could use Rust, like a Rust source file imported mm-hmm. into your JavaScript, and the Rust compiler could convert that into a WASM module. And as long as that's returned, boom, it's like as a developer, you don't have to care. Just add this source file and import it and use it just like JavaScript. So if we want to envision this, our CSS then kind of has a, a JavaScript wrapper around it. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, now in production modes. There's way to there's ways to work around this, right? Because there's huge performance downsides from doing this. And mm-hmm. I criticize CSS and JS a lot about this, also because anytime that you have CSS inside of JavaScript, you're delaying your paint until JavaScript parse, evaluates, and executes. Right. So, right. if you were to actually have that CSS in an extracted uh, style tag you know, in the head or, or link rel style sheet, whatever, then you can download and render and paint in parallel, right? That's why critical CSS is so important. Yeah. I mean, it gets cached too, right? I mean, like if it's exactly. just... Yeah. Yeah, we're big fans cached, of critical yeah. CSS and the, the purple patterns and all that kind of fun stuff here. For sure. So I, I just wanted to mention that concept because it's really important what we were talking about before about how JavaScript is kind of the center of the universe. And in order for Webpack to deal with these other things, it needs to create a JavaScript or one of these other module type wrappers around it. And that includes your CSS. That includes, you know, a number of other things. And there, as you mentioned, there are plugins like there's the extract mini CSS plugin, et cetera, et cetera, that will then pull it out. But the important concept that I want to get across to people is that this is something that Webpack on its own doesn't know. Like it doesn't know anything about your CSS. Like it knows nothing. And to be honest, like, you know, my advice is people are like, do I have to use CSS and JS? Like, or like, do I have to do any of this? It's like, no, you know, like go ahead and use whatever other tools you want to like process your CSS, put it in an HTML tag and just any JavaScript you're using, let it be responsible. You know, let Webpack be responsible. One of the hard things, like the reason why we're in this situation, or maybe it's easy for me to blame CSS, but like CSS is inherently flawed in its ability to be reusable or composable. Oh my God. (laughs) It's true. It's inherently flawed. There's no module system. You can't, you can't reuse it in a way you can't declare pieces of it. Like there's no modularity. Right. And so like, that's a huge flaw of, it's not a language, but you know, of this, this styling, you know, syntax. I agree with you, Sean. Like, I agree with everything you're saying. It's one of the reasons I'm a fan of what Adam Watham is doing with Tailwind CSS and all that. Right. It, I totally agree with you. The reason I said, oh, no, is, you know, all the all the CSS fans are going to be going crazy. But it's true, though. I'm sorry. It's, <laughs> it's uh, Eric Meyer. <laughs> well, like, please have him on. Like, I've tweeted at him directly and said, like, hey, man, can we just get some way to express modularity across multiple CSS files? Right. Like the problem is that like a static tools can't one, there's no mechanism for lazy loading in the lang- in the syntax itself. Sorry. It's not right. language. I mean, right. Uh, but it, there's no like method for me to say like, I want to lazy load this piece of CSS, you know, at this time. And that's, mm-hmm. that's hugely flawed, right? Because look at the average website and 80% of the CSS that's used, or I mean, that's shipped is unused, right. but your website has to pay for that 80% still, and it causes, you know, the slowness or you're still having to process that CSS through the formatter and the selector engines. And then also like, yeah, 
the inability to express modularity is like, it's just, it's inherently flawed. And I mean, I'm sorry to those who love CSS. Like I get it. You've spent uh, your entire life learning how every selector works. I That's true. But like JavaScript's flawed too. And I love it. But yeah, CSS, ugh, it's frustrating, no, I, right? I, because we've tried to speak with these teams so many times. And like, I'm glad we have people here at Microsoft who are on the CSS working group that really listen to us. Yeah. It, it's worth saying though that, uh, while th there are problems with the way that CSS is loaded and modularity like you're talking about, uh, it gets a lot of things right in the way it does layout and everything like that. Um, totally. Most of the way it works is really good. So it's it's kind of a small uh, subset of an issue. It's not like a whole language issue, which I think totally. could be misread, um, which I know you're not saying. Yep. But just for, for people out there hearing CSS is flawed, not the not the way it does most everything that it does. A lot of the way that it um, allows you to style your pages is awesome, but the way that you have to load it in, like lazy loading, like we were talking about, and uh, lack of modularity is a problem in scoping. applications at scale. Yeah, yeah scoping. Oh no, I, no, yeah. no, scoping. I, I just don't know CSS, so that's probably why I have scoping issues. Sorry, well, I, I'm just joking. <laughs> Well, everything everything is flawed to one extent or another. Exactly. But something that can kind of resonate or, or bring that home is the amount of work and tooling that has to be done to make it performance. So I do all of this stuff, exactly. Sean. Like I I generate critical CSS so that the uh, above the fold stuff renders, and then I run everything through purge CSS to make sure that the actual bundle is as small as uh, is needed for the the whole website and it would be really nice if there were smart ways that the the java or sorry the css could be lazy loaded and i know there are um, css and js solutions to do that but there's a lot of tooling that you need to do and a lot of work you need to do to make the css work in a nice performant way exactly yeah and not to mention like i mean like things like critical css and like, yeah. i almost see that as just like a hack you know to like fix the problem for now. That's right. absolutely right. Like critical CSS is just a, a hack or a workaround that yeah. there's no lazy loading, right? Right. Yeah. Um, well, everything's a hack. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Yeah, I, I, I can tell there's this probably a sensitive CSS community out there. People, I, I love CSS. I think it's really cool. As a bundler maintainer or somebody who's trying to statically analyze it and make it really performant, it is really frustrating to work with. Yeah. I'm sure. Hey, Jake, you had something that you wanted to ask um, Sean about in terms of uh, module support in browsers, right? Oh, yeah. So we were talking earlier before the show about kind of uh, what's coming to Webpack and uh, how browsers are evolving. And my question was, how are new browser features that are being implemented, things like uh, dynamic module import um, being built into browsers, how is that going to help the Webpack team have to do less and allow you guys to focus on other things? Like with dynamic module support, once that lands in all of the evergreen browsers, and it might be there, I don't know the answer there. It's do not. You, yeah, okay. So do you, once that lands, does it reduce a lot of the work that you have to do? I mean, will our Webpack bundles drop by 30% because you don't have to do some of the hacks that you have to do? Um, what new browser features are going to make what Webpack has to do uh, even less. So um, we can focus on dynamic import first. So dynamic yeah. import, for those who don't know, is this way of dynamically loading a JavaScript module. You can think of it before this. You'd have to like fetch a JavaScript file, uh, in unsecurely evaluate it, and then use that functionality. That was mm. like the previous times. Um, but today, like, let's say you're not using build tools. This allows you to actually have a dynamic additional loading of, of a file on demand, right? 
but there's limitations, right? And and I criticize native like using native modules in general like entirely, right? I have I have a lot of criticisms for it because it misses some of the mark uh, in some ways, which is like if you think of all the work that a bundler has to do at build time, a browser has to do all of that at runtime, right? Resolve a module, create the graph you know, execute the scripts in the right order, hoist things in different asynchronous, whatever, et cetera. Um, and so one of the downsides of the dynamic import is that one, it's kind of insecure, right? Like you can't really, I don't know, I'm not a huge fan of just the whole untrusted sources or uh, there's that concern, but also lazy loading anything has a cost, right? So any technique in programming has a cost. So lazy loading's cost is is the user experience having to see waiting for the network, right? And so you Mm. have to actually find a solution for that. When you just do it dynamically, there is no solution. The the user will have to wait for a dynamic import to occur. They'll wait for the network time, and then you'll get the module and it'll be evaluated. But with tools like Webpack, which statically create, so like at build time, we create these lazy loaded bundles. You can do things like put these in a service worker cache, let them be let them be available instantly to the network. So like you can you can uh, negate network time completely when uh, you are able to actually build lazy loaded bundles prior to actually loading in the browser. Hmm. Interesting. So are there other features that you're really excited about that um, kind of remove some complexity or some of the heavy lifting? And our browsers pretty good. I mean, you're on the edge team, so maybe. Um, there's some internal pushing uh, through through that team, but our browsers cooperating to make Webpack's job easier and ha- make the code that Webpack ships smaller, or are, for the most part, they c- kind of trying to imagine a world without Webpack. There are some people in the Chrome team who would love to do away with it, right? Because mm-hmm. it it kind of removes some control they have over the web platform, right? Like the bundler ecosystem really has a large say into new things that are added into specs, right? So um, hmm. I don't want to get too controversial, right? Because there are some yeah. standards maintainers who who have really worked really well with our team. But there's also some who have, you know, tried to undermine, you know, any capability that Webpack has. Uh, and so... Oh, that's what we want. We want to hear the dirt. No, it's yeah, just, tell us about that. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it's just long story short, one time I found a... a, a a, a online shared document that talked about uh, kind of a strategy to remove bundlers entirely from the web ecosystem by mm. slowly introducing mm. new web APIs that made them irrelevant. And so like, I'm like, oh, geez, now I'm going to sound like I'm paranoid anytime I bring this up to people. Or was like it the Russians? No, it wasn't. <laughs> it, was, it was just two, two specific folks on a specific browser that's specifically popular. Wow. Sean, sometimes they really are out to get you. Uh, yeah. Well, like... I don't, anyways, <laughs> but, um, you will say no more. I can't say too much more. Like I, I just don't I understand. want to, but, um, you know, so, so here's the thing, like, but at the, so I don't know, I, I'm going to criticize and say this browser team has tried so hard to make native modules fast that like, they're willing to introduce these new, like exotic API capabilities, like signed bundled exchange, like, top level await, like any new standard, you have to be super paranoid. You're like, are you just trying to make modules fast because they're way slower than bundling? Mm. And, and a lot of times we'll say, oh, no, 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 it's for this or that. And it's like, 
but really like always questioning what the real motive is. Right. Right. Like, so that's why I wasn't always a huge fan of top level weight, right? Because it's literally just supposed to make like, because calculating the module graph dynamically at runtime is incredibly slow. And especially if there's asynchronous functions in between it and it can cause like huge performance hits. Hmm. So, um, but like, yeah, at the end of the day, like to answer your question, Jake, the ironic thing is that actually the work that a bundler does is really small. Like our wrapper code is four kilobytes, not even. Wow. Right? It's just four kilobytes. Yeah. Anything else is the code that you include into your bundles, right? Or the lazy loading runtime is like, I don't know, like one extra K. Like it's super simple. Yeah, I think it's like four four 4.1, I think. I, I can never remember. It might be even smaller if you minify it. But yeah, like it's it's super small. But like there are some like what I have been really positive about is that there are new standards that are inspired by the way that people are using code powered by Webpack, hmm. right? So CSS modules, HTML modules um, are two right. active specs that have been heavily influenced and really designed based on the way that people in the Webpack ecosystem have used it, right? And so going back three years, I remember reaching out to, uh, what's his name? Um, he's the creator of Johnny Five. He's on TC39 and I reached out naively one day and I said, you know, hey, do you think it would ever be possible to standardize importing, I don't know, like HTML into a JavaScript file or CSS and JavaScript file? He said, no, never. <laughs> but now we're like two years later, right? And it's like, wow, we're already here. Uh, where the things we never thought would be possible or finally standards implementers are listening and... Maybe it has to do with me also having really open and strong representation here at Microsoft who want to help make bundling a core facet of of how we build the web today. It can't hurt to have an 800-pound gorilla behind you, you know? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it turns out they heavily depend on it as well. Yeah. 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 It's nice. I mean, it most definitely could hurt if the gorilla is not on your side. Just yeah. saying. <laughs> I mean, well, we've already seen that with a lot of web APIs that have been created, right? Yeah. Well, let, let's steer away from the controversial stuff and, and talk about some uh, talk about some pretty cool stuff. So, what is coming in Webpack Five? Like, what what are the major things that are like the if you had to just list on a slide the bullet points of what is going to be in Webpack Five? What would they be? Okay, I even I even like have a list here because it's been a little bit. We've been in alpha for a long time because Tobias went on paternity leave for a second kid, and so mm -hmm. I said like, "Hey, dude, take your time." Um, right. So uh, let me just grab the full change log and I can give you the summary, right? Yeah. And, and the other thing that I want to, I, I personally, for my own selfish reasons, I want to know, because I made this, you know, huge do everything for me kind of Webpack config for Webpack 4. How much work is it going to be for me to update this for Webpack 5? Always a valid question. Yeah. Okay. So I'll just kind of talk about the general direction, really, because uh, there's not a lot of like signature features in Webpack 5 that are like something you want to write home about. The largest one, I would say, is that we finally implemented, we had to do a lot of re-architecture to implement long-term uh, or persistent disk caching, right? So if you think about a plugin in our ecosystem called the hard source Webpack plugin, it kind of allowed you to, instead of when a bundle is generated, it would generate a cache file, right? And it would cache a lot of the expensive work involved in creating bundles. And so now we do this by default. It's not in a perfect state. It's pretty experimental, but that's how we take every new feature, right? We've always done this. So like that's, that's one of the biggest features that's going to really heavily impact large scale builds. So like customers that of Webpack that I can think of like Airbnb is super going to, is going to heavily benefit right. us here at Microsoft are going to heavily benefit. And anyone that's doing these massive builds, right? 
Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So they're going to hugely benefit. And even like, just like, you know, mom and pop shops or like dev agencies, like they're going to see the benefits as well. Uh, they're, they're, well, that's, was, that's the one resource that we can never get back is time, right? That's very true. Yeah. And it's so valuable. So the second, I think maybe largest feature is that we rewrote our ID system, right? So the t- determinism or the way that we generate hashes for bundles has changed. So in production, we generate hashes now by default. We won't generate a, a super long one. It'll be non-collision, but it'll be shorter. So uh, there's some small benefits there, but... So we don't have to put like the name token or whatever in there anymore, or, or the hash token to get the... That is correct. And so that'll be default in our production mode. In our development mode, we'll actually have named chunks, right? So now all your lazy loaded bundles, you won't have to use like Webpack chunk name when you dynamically import. You'll just get the name chunks by default and we'll infer it based on the file system. Mm. So those are two... That second feature was heavily inspired by by what Parcel could do, Right. We yeah. saw like, hey, they have name chunks and everybody's like, why should we have to, to set this? And we had good reasons, but we could do better, right? Um, so we did that, but it did require us to like really rewrite our determinism. So now it means that you're going to get real long-term caching also. So you don't have to use like crazy witchcraft to prevent hashes from changing. And mm. you you may know if you've been with Webpack for a long time, there's always been some weird reasons that hashes would change between builds um, yep. for you know, persistent caching. So, so that is, is fixed, right? So we have those. I'd say those are the largest features. When I was looking through the change log, like what, what concerned me the most for <laughs> semi-obvious reasons is that I had, I had literally just finished this deep dive and this config and everything. And then I saw the tweet go out saying Webpack 5 Alpha. And I'm just like, oh, God, are you kidding me? But when I, when I looked through the change list, it looked like, a lot of it, I mean, I'm not uh, minimizing the no, work ahead. that's done under that has been done under the hood, but a lot of it looked like the things that were deprecated in Webpack 4 are now really going to be gone in Webpack 5. Right. And that yeah. you're absolutely right. And we have to kind of take a, a slow approach. Like we, right. we uh, respect that we are heavily dependent on now. And so mm. what we do is we'll deprecate in, in one major version and then we'll remove in the next major version. So yes, there's a lot of stuff that was deprecated and it's getting removed. Did we, we didn't drop AMD support, did we? No, we didn't. So, I mean, it, it appeared to me, at least on the surface, and I haven't played with Webpack 5 at all yet, but on the surface, it appeared to me that if you have done the quality of life to get everything up to the modern way of doing things vis-a-vis Webpack 4, that you're going to have a pretty easy transition to Webpack 5 for the most part. Exactly. This is going to be a pretty painless update. And there's like most breaking changes may exist for like custom plugins. And we'll work with those people. And we own most of the custom plugins. So... See, yeah, I mean, the majority of the plugins we depend on are that at least I depend on our first party anyway, I guess. Exactly. See, Jonathan, all that work that we did on Webpack, the Webpack 4 config, it's going to be worth it because it's it's going gonna, it's gonna to work with Webpack 5 and away we go. And there are builds will be faster, I guess. And anything that doesn't work, Sean has said that he's going to spend as much as much time as he needs to fix our Webpack config for us. <laughs> I was just doing a performance analysis to see how much CSS you had unused, and I was pretty impressed. Yeah, so, <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, it sounds like you all are doing things definitely the right way. Trying, 
trying. So that that is actually, you know, as we're kind of wrapping up the, the podcast, it is something I wanted to ask you is, you know, given that you're high profile on Webpack, you know, something that confuses people, d- does everyone and their brother just ask you to like fix their Webpack problem? Um, So you have to think of it from my perspective. Uh, this was like when I joined Microsoft, this was like the first time I've ever worked at a ginormous company. Mm-hmm. So like I kind of leaned in right to my presence in Webpack, but nobody even knew who I like most people here who aren't really in the web ecosystem or JavaScript have no idea who I am. Right. So right. Um, most of these are C sharp C plus plus developers turned into now doing web dev. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't go to conferences. They don't go on Twitter. So the first thing I did when I started here is I created this internal Microsoft teams channel uh, called Webpack at Microsoft. And so I reached out to as many people as possible on as many distribution lists and said, hey, my name's Sean. I just started here on the Edge team. You might know me as one of the maintainers of the Webpack project. Here's a channel that you you know, you know, can join. If you ever have questions or you ever want to have a perf evaluation, I would love for you to document like what version of Webpack you're on and what products this is and, you know, really uh and built the ecosystem you know like in my first six months but like to my benefit though like strategically this helps help got my name out instantly to everybody across campus uh right and it was really beneficial right because i could go out to a team and have huge impact using like i don't know with seemingly little effort right because this is my bread and butter knowledge well i want to make it clear to anyone who's listening now (laughs) That Sean is talking about in the context of his employer that pays him. Yes. Okay. So if you're listening to this, that doesn't mean that Sean said he he wants everyone to send them his their webpack <laughs> config to fix, right? Well, you know, we like we work really hard on our docs, right? So I always right. say please check the docs first, especially if it's like, can right. I do this or how do I do this? Like we try really, really, really hard to get that right. Um, I always tell people my DMs are open. I think uh, as of now, I've gotten a way busier. And so like, I'm a little bit slower to, to respond to them. But like I try and at, at one point, like once a month, I try to get through all of my unread messages and respond to them and say like, sorry, is this still a problem? Do you need help? So yeah, I don't mind a little bit of unsolicited help, but like it's also my my free time, right? And so if I'm not spending a huge amount of time on contributing to Webpack or I'm not spending a lot of time at work or traveling across the world speaking at conferences, it's family time. Right. So I right. I don't mind a message whatsoever. Like I'll always say hi to you, especially if you DM me. My DMs are open for a reason. So feel free to reach out. What time of month do you check check all those just so I know when to DM you strategically? <laughs> I just roll a dice <laughs> and it's whatever day I choose. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It, it doesn't matter. You can reach anytime. I just try to tell people like expect a slow response, right? Well, and I've I've got another time related question to ask you about. And we're winding down the podcast, so I just want to ask you uh, on a personal note: What inspired you to start learning Mandarin Chinese? Oh, I love the ecosystem. Like China is this like untapped treasure trove of brilliant engineers, and the scale mm. is like a hundred x. Uh, of us right right and you know i've always loved the food i've always loved the people you know you go over there and they treat you like amazing the culture is so virtually different so so does it come out of your job spending time over there and that's how you got exposed to it and decided to start learning started actually as like a (laughs) so at college one of our prerequisites was we had to have one culture credit and so Uh you could take language or you could do what's called china trip and (laughs) Well, sign me up for the China well, Dr. trip. Dr. <laughs> Pan he, who is the 
economics professor, you know, but he's from China. He would take a group of students over and like, you only had to pay like 1500 bucks for like, you'd spend three weeks in China. Right. And it's flight included. Everything's included. And the only like thing you had to do is like, come back and say, how do you, how do you play Chinese chess? Xiangqi. And, um, yeah, like that was your only prerequisite uh, and your homework for the single culture credit. So we're like, okay. But once I went over there, I was blown away. I, I loved it. It's like you're right. in a like you're in a fantasy land, and like things are so different, and the culture is so different, and so I, I love it. And and I really like so now uh, I want to help. Like so here at Microsoft, we have what we call diversity core priorities, right? So diversity inclusion core priorities. So like every one of us who has a review, we have a core priority to work on how are we going to increase diversity and inclusion in some way through our job. And so for me, one of the ones that I I have is I want to increase our mind share and market share and presence and community inside of China and Africa. And so, Hmm. um, you know, this is one, it's a way for me to help uh, have a greater presence in China, right? Because it's a completely different language and it's, well, I, I'm impressed by your dedication, Sean. And the re- the reason I want to I want to mention this is that my my wife, her first language is uh, Mandarin right. uh, Chinese, and she speaks a whole bunch of different dialects too, and yeah. everything. And I I went through the whole phase of like, oh, this is awesome. I'll just go learn it. And uh, yeah, I realized like how stupid I actually was because. <laughs> I've had or such how a hard time. Is. I had such a hard. Well, and, and that's the thing. Well, a lot of it is is so foreign. Like you know, uh, Mao, Mao, yep. Mao, Mao. Those are yep. four different words. They mean four totally different things, but to me, they sound the same, yep. right? Like it's just my my untrained Western ear. But I'm I am super impressed that you are are dedicated to uh, to learning that because it is something that I tried and failed at. <laughs> well, and you know, like. <laughs> I think it's the music major in me. I actually did a thesis, uh, a research project uh, when I was in college mm. and it, it was on perfect pitch, right? Perfect pitch is this idea that I can play a note and you as a person can like know what that note is, right? Or like, let's say if you heard a song and somebody tuned it by like five hertz up or down, you would say like, this feels wrong, right? Because your perfect pitch expects it to be in that exact frequency or note. So this is something that typically right. you're only born with, or at least that's what scientists thought. Okay. Well, that explains it because I'm totally tone deaf. So my, <laughs> I remember vividly my grandmother, when I was a, when, when I was a child, she said, oh, you know, your, your grandfather who had since passed away had such a wonderful <laughs> voice. Like, I wonder if you had that too, like try singing something. <laughs> so I, I did like, you know, I sang something and she's like, she just shook her head and said, oh, probably not. And then walked away. <laughs> oh, <laughs> The, the first version of the wet, of the dev mode podcast yeah, theme song, yeah. Andrew actually sung it, and we we had to scrap it. Yeah, but we but we we have we have taken far too much of your time. Yeah, we right. got to wind this down, of course, of course. So that about wraps it up for another episode of the DevMode.fm podcast. Uh, to have every episode delivered to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to our RSS or subscribe via iTunes or Google Play. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a review. You can follow us on Twitter at DevMode.fm. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Leave a comment on the DevMode.fm website. For the DevMode.fm podcast, I'm Andrew Welch. I'm Jonathan Melville. Jake Doe. And thank you very much for coming on, Sean. Hey, thanks for having me and always bet on JavaScript.
Jake told me to weave that in there. He told me to weave in the bet on JavaScript, and I totally failed and didn't do it. Don't worry. I got said it. it. No, he said it. I got it. Well, I know he said it, but I was. You, you told me to sneak it in there. <laughs> I was. Uh, we were talking before the show. I was like, "Cue up, Sean, to say something about betting on."